Welcome to Line of Defense, a Womble Bond Dickinson white collar and investigation series, where leading white collar practitioners discuss hot topics and emerging trends in government investigations and enforcement. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Line of Defense. I'm Britt Biles, a litigation partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Womble Bond Dickinson. Today, I'm joined by my partner, Lee Van Voris, who practices in the antitrust space, also in Washington, D.C., as well as Michael Clark, who practices litigation and white collar in our Houston, Texas office. Thank you, Lee and Michael, for joining us today on Line of Defense. Thank you for having us. I'm delighted to be here. Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We have come together today to discuss the Supreme Court's recent administrative law decision involving the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Trade Commission. Lee, I'm going to kick it over to you to give us some background on the the Cochran and Axon decisions which were consolidated before the Supreme Court. Just a bit of background. Ms. Cochran and the company called Axon were involved in separate proceedings, Ms. Cochran before the Securities and Exchange Commission and Axon before the Federal Trade Commission. And subject to matters in the internal courts, if you will, but the administrative proceedings within those commissions governed by an administrative law judge. Both Axon and Ms. Cochran protested that the procedures through which they were being forced to go were unconstitutional in certain ways and sued to block the the procedures uh, at all. In federal district court, Axon in the Ninth Circuit and Ms. Cochran in the Fifth Circuit. They both lost at the district court level, where both district courts said that, no, they had to go through the entire administrative proceeding uh, pursuant to the Administrative Procedures Act and got their chance in court when they appealed to the circuit courts. They got their chance to argue constitutionality only at the end of the proceedings when they appealed to circuit courts. Both plaintiffs appealed those initial decisions in district court to the respective uh, circuit courts, and the Ninth Circuit agreed with the district court and not Axon. But the Fifth Circuit created the first ever circuit split on this and agreed with Ms. Cochran. That circuit split is what got these cases to the Supreme Court uh, kind of just coincidentally at around the same time, and the Supreme Court decided to take them both. Supreme Court ruled for Axon and Ms. Cochran and against the Federal Trade Commission and the Security and Exchange Commission. They held that, in fact, you can challenge the constitutionality of these commissions prior to having to go through the actual administrative proceedings. And they looked to a prior case called Thunder Basin to look at the the relevant factors. And interestingly, Lee, this was a unanimous Supreme Court decision, which is rare to find in these current times on the court, but all nine justices agreed that litigants challenging the constitutionality of an administrative proceeding involving the FTC and the SEC should have a chance to do that in federal district court as opposed to first before the agency and then in a deferential review process before the court of appeal. So to me, that was the thing that stood out the most, that all nine justices, despite their their political differences and the differences in their legal backgrounds, all came to the same conclusion. I, I agree. And interestingly, it was Justice Kagan that wrote the decision for the court, and none of the democratically appointed justices wrote any concurrence or dissent at all. So universal. Um, 
we can talk at some point about the two conservative justices who wrote concurrences. But Michael, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, th- I think it's a uh, it's an opening for people that are concerned about the fairness of agency proceedings and whether or not to try to stop the agency proceeding from from going forward. And that is um, this is really the the way to do it is to read Justice Thomas's uh, concurring opinion, which takes issue with the whole administrative uh, process and the inherent unfairness of it. And he uh, essentially, if you read his concurring opinion, signals uh, that he would be willing to look at it very, very, very carefully and whether or not the whole process is unconstitutional ab initio. But be that as it may, there are other cases in the pipeline that um, that are going up. Uh, potentially, the SEC had sought certiorari of uh, another decision involving the SEC and the Fifth Circuit that had come down and found on three bases that the administrative proceedings that was uh, brought against a um, investment manager were unfair. And the most interesting of those is the issue about the agency using the administrative process to bypass a person's right to a jury trial. So there's a lot of commentators watching that very, very carefully. And with the concurring opinion of Justice Thomas, it seems to me that would be a roadmap for the for the respondent, uh, a gentleman named Jark Casey, to, uh, to emulate in his response to the SEC's petition for cert. Michael, you touched upon the concept of fairness at a couple of different points, and I want to speak to that a little bit because I was in the trial unit, the Securities and Exchange Commission, so I actually litigated these administrative proceedings before ALJs. And just to give a little bit of background on what that process is, the Division of Enforcement would investigate a potential violation and decide whether to recommend charges. The Division of Enforcement would take that to the commission. The commission would vote to bring charges against a respondent, and then the case would be heard in front of an administrative law judge who worked at the SEC, and the proceedings would take place in an SEC courtroom handled by SEC lawyers, and then the SEC administrative law judge would render a decision. And the first level of appeal, if you will, is to the commission itself, so the same commission that would vote on the rules that the agency was going to apply and the same commission that would decide whether to bring an action is the same commission that ultimately decides whether the case was was rightly or wrongly decided. And it's only at that point does a litigant get his first chance in federal court, and then it's only at a court of appeals under a very deferential standard review that doesn't involve fact-finding. And only if a litigant goes through all of those steps would the litigant be able to to go to federal court? There has to be a final order. And so that's really what the Axon and Cochran decision changed. Now the litigant can, can sidestep that process and go straight to federal district court and say, this is an unconstitutional process. I shouldn't have to submit to it. So the, the fairness aspect of this, I, I think, is really what's driving this decision to give people a bypass to, to bring their constitutional claims before someone who is less partial, if you will, than the very agency that decided to investigate and charge the respondent in the first instance. 
Yeah, and Britt, it's exactly the same at the Federal Trade Commission, that there's an ALJ appointed by the FTC. Uh, the commission itself is prosecutor, judge, and jury, and also appellate first uh, level of appeal. And that's exactly what Axon protested there as well. Um, I agree with you. This changes it. It's very interesting, at, at least at the FTC they uh, just went to Congress and asked for a lot more funding, saying they are overwhelmed with all the work they have to do. I got to say, I think one of the implications of this decision is they're going to have a lot more work to do because at least some percentage of uh, litigants against whom they bring charges are going to go this route. And until this gets decided, there's going to be more of this preliminary litigation that they're going to have to go through now. When will this be decided? Well, I, I think we agree that this is likely to be back before the Supreme Court but for too very long. The underlying cases um, have not yet been decided. Um, now they go back to the district court level to decide on the constitutionality of the very proceedings that Axon and Ms. Cochran are, are challenging. Michael, what do you think? think who's going to win the, the uh, cases now? I don't think that you know, the unanimity of this decision doesn't bode well for the administrative agencies, I think, on first glance in, in the district courts. I think most district courts are going to seriously rethink how they've traditionally looked at these uh, cases, and that's where it's going to be interesting to see how it sorts out um, to me. But the other administrative agencies are potentially in harm's way as well, and I think those of us who are practicing, and I do some administrative practice as well, you have to look very carefully at the agency and the and the law about these issues. And so I think that's kind of the takeaway to me is if I've got a client and we're looking down the road and the home field advantage looks too onerous, there are options now, procedural options that don't require like uh, Mr. Jarcasey had to do, going through all these hoops, trying to file an injunction against the SEC on the administrative proceeding and so on and so forth and having to exhaust his rights administratively before he can get to a court of appeals. And you know, now you can go straight into federal district court, arguably. So this is a whole new ballgame, at least for the, for the near term, in my eyes. I, I think it also opens up potential creative arguments and new ways of challenging the administrative state, because I think if you had gone back in time, people would have assumed that these cases were destined to fail. There were statutes that prescribed a specific jurisdiction for review of agency actions. The administrative process had been in place for a very long time. So I'm sure many people would have been correct in betting that these cases would have failed. So now that these cases have succeeded in this unique jurisdictional challenge, there will probably be other ways that people are striking out at, at bringing different kinds of challenges. Um, but ultimately, the merits of both Cochrane and Axon are still in play because this was entirely a jurisdictional decision that just said which forum and when the constitutional claims should be decided. The constitutional claims to the that challenge the structure of the agencies and the very existence of the administrative process, those still are yet to be decided. And th those claims center on the idea that the FTC is the judge, jury, and appellate process. Uh, and they also center on the way the officials involved in these proceedings are appointed and whether that appointment process is it's constitutional. So those are still be 
to be determined. In my view, I, I think there, as Lee said, there will be a raft of litigation that ultimately goes to the Supreme Court. But I think once those cases are decided, that will sort of be the end of it, in my view, at least for these types of constitutional challenges, because the Supreme Court will either say these proceedings are constitutional or they will say they are not. If they are constitutional, then this is sort of the end of, of this type of litigation until someone develops a new way to, to bring a challenge to the administrative proceedings. If, if the Supreme Court says the constitutional challenges are valid, then either the administrative state is going to have to be redesigned or more minimal adjustments will be made, such as after the SEC's loss in Lucia, that will find a new avenue for these, these administrative proceedings to go forward. Yeah, I agree with Michael. I think uh, Justice Thomas drew a roadmap. I think that the unfairness argument just has a lot of persuasive power. You know, when the FTC, and I can speak more about that, is, you know, prosecutor, judge, and jury, and hasn't lost a case, you know, ever, even when the ALJ has ruled against FTC staff, when staff appeals to the commission, the commission rules in favor of staff and overrules the ALJ. So the commission just doesn't lose. It, it just has such a patina of incredible unfairness that I think that process is at real at real risk. Now, maybe not the existence entirely of the Federal Trade Commission, but the way that that ALJ process. Now, I agree with you, potentially the process of appointing an ALJ and the oversight of an ALJ can be fixed. But, but I wonder about whether you could fix the inherent unfairness about such a process. I think that the agencies had uh, better very seriously think about what cases they want to bring administratively versus bringing in Article Three court. For example, with Jarcasey, I think that the Seventh Amendment argument has legs, and denying somebody the right to a jury trial, uh, you know, which is a constitutionally recognized right, uh, is problematic. So, you know, I think that that becomes incumbent on on the agencies to exercise a whole lot more constraint in what they have done moving forward until at least these issues are sorted out. Well, the SEC actually has has been doing that for years. There was a high water market when the SEC was bringing almost all of their litigated enforcement proceedings before ALJs. But then after the Lucia case and, and various other challenges to the SEC's enforcement process, the SEC has already been steering more cases to federal district court unless it's a certain type of proceeding that is, is suitable for an ALJ proceeding or can only be brought in that way. But I, I don't know if I agree about the the Thomas concurrence being a roadmap. I mean, I think if this case is to go back to the Supreme Court on the merits, getting to a decision that effectively dismantles the entire administrative state with the current composition of the court seems like a higher hill to climb than, than getting agreement on this jurisdictional issue. Well, yeah, I certainly wouldn't expect that decision to be unanimous. <laughs> um, but it seems to me there's at least the possibility to to modify it to some degree, whether it's Justice Thomas's arguments taken literally and, and directly, I don't know. I mean, we haven't mentioned the Gorsuch concurrence, which I also very much like in, in his saying how simple and clear this should have been and that we don't even need the Thunder Basin factors to figure out that the administrative process is able to be challenged uh, prior. 
he he doesn't quite as clearly telegraph what as Thomas does what I think his views will be on the merits. But he does make a note that agencies like the SEC and FTC combine the functions of investigator, prosecutor, and judge under one roof with relaxed rules of procedure and evidence seems to be a nod towards disagreeing with that approach. And then the question is how long until this filters down into the states? Now, this is purely federal agencies that are being challenged in federal courts. But as we all know, states have adopted counterparts. Uh, with their own schemas for administrative actions. And I would think that that litigants are going to take note of this and argue that it's persuasive in state agency proceedings. And, it, you know, what I, what I worry about, candidly, is lawyers that are just throwing these arguments out uh, without really doing good briefing or good analysis. And as we all know, bad facts can make bad law. So I would hope that people are going to write you know, thoughtful challenges, and and um, that remains to be seen, quite candidly, instead of scattershot approaches. And the facts, I think, really mattered in this case, because at least with respect to Cochran, it was a compelling set of circumstances. She had gone through an administrative proceeding before an administrative law judge of the SEC had been found liable for accounting violations. At that point, the Supreme Court had rendered its decision in Lucia, concluding that the administrative law judges were improperly appointed. So the SEC embarked on fixing that constitutional defect, reappointing the ALJs, and set about to bring Ms. Cochran into yet another administrative law proceeding before an SEC ALJ. And that's when she ultimately decided to, to go to federal district court to challenge the whole process. So I, I think this is an example where she had a very compelling set of facts to tee the issue up before the court. Agreed. I agree. I wonder about, this is kind of irrelevant now because the court has made its decision, but um, I think an individual who's gone through that is a more sympathetic party than a company. Um, you know, what is this right to avoid having to go through it? For a company, is it anything more than burden expense, which the the court in other cases has said was not sufficient to uh, to, to change this? I, I find this decision fairly hard to distinguish from some of the prior decisions on what was good enough. I, I you know I'm, I certainly get it in terms of an individual having a right to not have to go through this, but. Um, not really sure what right they're finding for a company beyond something that they said in, in prior cases. But be that as it, as it may, it, it is there now. I think that puts a fine point on everything here. You know, the, the due process issue is the overriding concern here for individuals. As you said, Michelle Cochran went through years of uh, struggling to get her argument uh, properly heard. Uh, Jar Casey, I think, uh, that's now up at the Supreme Court on the SEC's appeal, I think went through 10 or 11 years of doing the administrative dance to, to finally get in front of the Fifth Circuit, having fought each step of the way. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Brett Lucia came in, and that gave people a chance to regroup and argue that the SEC uh, appointment procedures for judges, ALJs, was improper. So these cases have common threads. And to me, the um, 
SEC's uh, appeal and from the Fifth Circuit and Jarcasey is is the next one that I'm watching very carefully. Well, where do we go from here as as defense lawyers or as litigants in in these cases? What what's the immediate next step in in your view? Well, I would much rather be in front of a federal district court. Uh, a judge that's been appointed uh, for life and has independence than an ALJ. I would rather not have to uh, worry about um, whether I get a jury trial or not. I would far rather have a jury trial. So, you know, my preference in advising a client, yeah, if you if you don't feel that you can settle with the government, that's the first issue. If you find that this is one that has to go to the mat, I would much rather go to the mat in front of a Article Three judge and in front of an administrative agency. And this gives a pathway. I, I agree with that 100%. I, I think there are two calculations that will be interesting to see. The first one is by the, the commissions. You know, are they going to reduce the number of cases that they bring in front of their ALJs and, and choose instead to go to federal district court? I don't know. But then if you're a defendant who is looking, you know, staring down the barrel of this investigation, you have to make the calculation of whether you want to add this additional proceeding, which at this point for this interim period until the underlying merits are decided is going to cost you more as a defendant. Because on the side of the FTC, I don't see them stopping a case just because you say we should be, you know, we as defendants say we should be in federal district court. In fact, they're litigating a merger right now in their own ALJ proceeding. So for defendants, you know, it's going to cost more. Do you do it? I think there's an interesting cost-benefit calculation. I think in the case of if it's a merger, the way that the Axon case is, there might be seen to be some benefits of prolonging the investigation that justify the additional cost of an additional proceeding. Um, I don't know if that was the case on part of Axon, but for defendants who are merging, I could certainly see that being the case. But but maybe it's not. Maybe you're just willing to take your chances and go through the, the ALJ proceeding and not, not undergo the cost. But I think it, it's something that you would want to at least raise with the staff during the investigation that, that you'd be going through and see where that uh, gets you. Well, the SEC has already been steering more cases to federal district court. So they're, they're definitely cognizant of the risk that they face in the ALJ process. And I don't think they, they want to be bringing cases in that proceeding that are going to give rise to sympathetic facts like the Cochran decision did. But ultimately, I think it's just a part of the, the normal litigation strategy calculus, the same calculus that you make when you decide whether to settle or proceed. And, and realistically, the SEC, as it's become more aggressive and is seeking to impose harsher penalties, larger disgorgement figures, um, litigants start getting into territory where there isn't an option. All the, the cards are on the table. So it when the stakes are higher, the cost and the additional steps of making every possible argument in federal district court start to seem more realistic in comparison to the alternative. Agreed. I think this is very much a developing area of the law that we are keeping an eye on for our clients, and we will be back 
probably with future podcast episodes and client alerts to talk about the Cochran decision and other cases as they unfold. Thank you, Britt. Thank you, Britt. Yeah. Thank you, Britt. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to Line of Defense, a Womble Bond Dickinson white collar and investigation series. Please join us for future episodes. And remember, we always stand ready to be your line of defense.